On October 11, 2023, KEI hosted a program with Rachel Minyoung Lee, which offered a discussion on how North Korea perceives economic security and U.S.-China strategic competition, how its views of U.S.-China relations and the changing global order have reshaped Pyongyang's foreign and economic policy, and the opportunities and challenges that the geopolitics and geoeconomics of U.S.-China competition pose to Pyongyang. Welcome to KEI, those who are here uh, in, in-house and those joining us on our YouTube live stream uh, for today's event, Economic Security in U.S.-China Competition, uh, The View from North Korea. And today's program is part of our Korea Policy Series, where authors of articles for KEI's flagship journal, Korea Policy, will present uh, key arguments and takeaways from their paper drafts, which will later be published in our Korea Policy Journal. And today we're very pleased to be joined by Rachel Min Young Lee, who is a senior analyst at the Vienna-based Open Nuclear Network, or ONN, and also a non-resident fellow with uh, the 38 North program at the Stimson Center, my my former home. Uh, Rachel uh, was a North Korean collection expert and analyst at the Open Source Enterprise uh, with the US government from the year 2000 to 2019, uh, so nearly 20 years. and I should say, I remember actually, Rachel, it was, I think, like my second or third day uh, when I had joined 38 North, and this is in mid-January 2020 before COVID upended everything. I think it was at the Wilson Center, and you were presenting, I think, a sort of a, a primer on how to do open source research on North Korea. The one hosted by Jean Lee. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember thinking... There's no lack of very smart people in this town um, who are who are very well informed, but it's a real skill, um, uh, a real art to to be able to convey your knowledge uh, in a way um, that's accessible and that that I think that can impress uh, people in the know who are experts, but also be accessible to people who are non-experts. And I remember thinking as you presented that you were you were bridging that gap so well. Um, and so, and I had been familiar with your work before then, um, and of course with 38 North since, uh, and in other uh, uh, sort of platforms as well. So I'm very pleased to have you here today and to have your um, contribution to Korea policy. Um, before I turn things over to Rachel uh, to present her paper, just briefly on our run of show, uh, Rachel will present, um, as I said, her paper for um, you know, 15, 20 minutes or so. Um, and then we will turn to a little bit of a discussion between us, some some questions that I've prepared ahead of time, and then we'll open things up to the audience here, but also online. So if you are online, um, please, if you have questions uh, that you think of as Rachel presents, feel free to put them in the chat box, uh, and we will get to them during our Q&A. So that is more than enough out of me, and I will turn to you to present uh, your wonderful paper, a copy of which I have here, and I've been pouring over. So please, uh, Rachel. Um, thank you so much, um, Clint, for the very warm um, introduction, um, and also thank you uh, to Korea Economic Institute for this opportunity. So when Clint first uh, reached out to me in June to invite me to uh, write a paper on um, economic security and U.S.-China strategic competition and a view from North Korea, my first reaction was, 
wow, this is very interesting because uh, when we talk about economic security, um, we don't often think about North Korea. North Korea is not really in the equation. It's normally, you know, um, global supply chains, semiconductor, and all, of course, all of the countries associated with um, with those um, topics. And North Korea doesn't really figure into that um, into that discussion, obviously, because it's not connected um, to the global economy. It has a very minimal um, role in global supply chains at best. Um, so. It has been a great opportunity uh, for me to follow up and follow up on and piece together some of the issues that I have been following um, and examine them from a holistic point of view. And that is how North Korea views um, economic security and U.S. Sino strategic competition and how that in turn has figured into its foreign and economic policy thinking. So my presentation today will focus on uh, the political rather than economic um, fallout of U.S.-China uh, relations for the obvious reason that, again, North Korea's uh, role in the global economy and global supply chains is uh, minimal <laughs> at best. Um, so briefly, my the structure of my presentation will be, um, it'll be basically for um, arts. First, North Korea's perception of economic security. Uh, secondly, U.S.-China competition and implications for North Korea's foreign policy. The third part will be implications for North Korea's economic policy. And then um, some observations about what I view as North Korea's uh, China de-risking. And even though this is primarily about U.S.-Sino competition and North Korea, um, Russia will be covered um, in my presentation um, because as it is one of the outcomes of um, North Korea's changing worldview. So to start with North Korea's uh, stance on economic security, uh, though the concept of economic security has always um, existed in a domestic context. So North Korea is always linking national security to um, their potential for economic development. And we see this narrative going, growing stronger um, when North Korea wants to uh, spend more money on defense. Um, it was never really referred to as um, economic security. Uh, now, in, a, in external contexts, we start to see North Korea mentioning economic security specifically at the end of May 2022. And that was uh, right after a conservative president in South Korea, so Yoon Suk-yeol, um, took office. And this was also right after his first summit with Biden, where uh, economic security was um, one of the main agenda items. <laughs> and so economic security in North Korea uh, is mentioned mainly in two contexts. One is uh, in relation to South Korea. Uh, basically expressing wariness over South Korea's pivot to the U.S., uh, on the pretext of economic security, the strengthening and broadening of uh, South Korea, U.S. and Japan relations uh, and cooperation and its implications uh, for North Korea's security environment. The other context in which North Korea likes to talk about economic security is in relation to China, uh, basically supporting China's position on the various issues connected with this economic security um, and U.S.-Sino competition. Um, it is notable, it was notable to me that all of the items on China, reports, um, commentaries, 
supporting China with regard to economic security were uh, posted uh, to the uh, North Korean the North Korean Foreign Ministry website. So basically, we have the North Korean Foreign Ministry uh, explicitly endorsing um, China, and that's really within the um, it's consistent with North Korea's um, pivot toward China, which I'll um, get to um, in greater detail later. Interestingly, North Korea started commenting on a shifting global economic order around the time that it started to discuss uh, China's um, supporting China's position on economic security. And usually this was by way of promoting BRICS uh, at the same time, again, that it began to track China and economic security issues, uh, which to me indicated that Pyongyang viewed the shifting global economic order in connection with U.S.-China uh, strategic competition. Now, I would like to talk a little bit about the implications um, for, for, for foreign policy. Um, North Korea's view of the, sh uh, the deteriorating China-U.S. relations um, and how that's figured into Pyongyang's foreign policy thinking. Um, I mentioned briefly um, a couple of minutes ago that um, the North Korean foreign ministry started supporting China on economic security related matters um, in, in the summer of 2022. And that really is in line with the North Korean foreign ministry starting to back China and also Russia at the same time um, on the broad range of issues uh, from uh, diplomatic issues to economic security, um, cyber hacking. Uh, so, um, and this was uh, starting in August 22. Um, so this indicated to me the fact that they were, they, the, the, North, the North Korean foreign ministry shifted, um, well, or not shifted because there wasn't really any support for either China or Russia on the foreign ministry website before August 2021. But the fact that they, the website, the foreign ministry um, started to endorse both of those countries so explicitly um, starting in August 2021, indicated to me that North Korea was really reassessing the global order and its relations with China, the United States, and later Russia. In the back of this foreign policy review was what Pyongyang perceived to be the Biden administration's continued hostile policy. Um, and probably not just the Biden administration, but from Pyongyang's point of view, all um, succeeding U.S. administrations um, continuation of so-called um, hostile policy. Also, what it viewed as a shift in global order and Washington's continued hostile policy um, appeared to have generated serious skepticism within the North Korean leadership um, about the country's three-decade policy of um, non-alignment with China and Russia and normalizing relations with the U.S. Uh, through denuclearization and using basically using Washington as a buffer against its great power, the two great power neighbors. I mentioned uh, the shifting, what North Korea views as a shifting global order. In the fall of 2021, around the time that the North Korean foreign ministries began to support China and Russia um, by means of its website, um, the North Korean leadership seems to have taken what it viewed as a shifting global order seriously, and that that began to figure into their policy thinking. And the reason I say this is that the following month in September, 2021, Kim Jong-un in his speech to the Supreme People's Assembly, and this is the North Korean parliament, 
um, for the first time, characterized the global order as a new Cold War. I believe the KCNA English translated that as neo-Cold War. <laughs> and in a speech to the SPA the following year, um, in September 2022, Kim, for the first time, assessed that a U.S.-led unipolar world was transitioning to a multipolar world and that this transition was being accelerated significantly, quote-unquote. And so North Korea has had a tendency to view China and Russia together forming one anti-U.S. pole in a multipolar or bipolar world. And I think that the developments of February 22, and by developments, I mean the Xi-Putin no limits in friendship joint declaration and Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine, uh, could have uh, convinced the North Korean leadership that the China-Russia partnership may effectively counterbalance the United States and the West, that U.S. leadership on the global stage was being weakened, um, and therefore North Korea should realign with China and Russia. I mentioned briefly before that North Korea seems to be moving away from the United States or the policy of normalizing relations with the U.S. Um, through denuclearization. There were two recurring themes in the wake of the collapse of the Hanoi summit. Um, first, the North Korea was in for a long-term confrontation, quote-unquote, with the U.S. And secondly, therefore, North Korea needed to be prepared accordingly. This thinking on Kim Jong-un's part um, translated into a hardening of policy across all fronts, um, domestic and foreign. But I think it is important to know that Pyongyang had not quite ruled out denuclearization from its public narrative. Um, and of course, when I say this, and you know, some people might um, question, well, did North Korea ever have the intention of mm. denuclearizing? I want to make it clear here that from its in its public narrative, um, that didn't quite go away, despite the hardening of policies across all fronts. But in September 2022, um, in Kim Jong-un's Supreme People's Assembly speech, he said there was no bargaining over nuclear weapons and that there was no line of retreat. Um, no, he, said, he said a line of no retreat had been drawn, excuse me. And this indicated to me that um, it was a major shift from its three-decade policy of normalizing relations with Washington through denuclearization. And if that was not clear enough, in case that wasn't clear enough to all of us, um, Kim Jong-un basically reiterated the same point in his uh, uh, Supreme People's Assembly speech in September 2023. So that was only a couple of weeks ago. And that was also about two weeks after his visit to Russia. Um, and he said, as long as our republic exists as a socialist state, <clears throat> and as long as the tyrannical nuclear weapons of the imperialists trying to stamp out independence and socialism exist on the earth. We must neither change nor concede the present position of our country as a nuclear weapon state, but on the contrary, continue to further strengthen the nuclear force. And this was in reference to his decision or the party's decision to codify the nuclear law into the constitution. And he ended this comment by saying, this is the serious strategic judgment made by our party and government. So I think the notable word here is strategic. He was basically saying that this is not on a whim. 
um, we are taking a longer view of what is happening in the region and the world. And this is the decision that we have come to. This is not some knee-jerk reaction to what is happening in the region. And I think that's the meaning of strategic care. So in terms of pivoting to China, uh, I think North Korea's changing calculus vis-a-vis -vis China um, appears to have shaped or at least provided some impetus to North Korea's decision to move away from its three-decade policy of normalization with the U.S. Uh, through denuclearization. And I think a milestone, a watershed moment um, in North Korea-China relations uh, in Kim Jong-un's time was in June 2019 when Xi Jinping visited Pyongyang. Um, at the time, North Korea media's coverage was notable for its emphasis on the socialist bond between the two countries. And I say this is notable because this the socialist bond would become a recurring theme in North Korea's, um, at the highest levels of North Korea's um, public messaging um, in connection to China, for example, in Kim Jong-un's letters uh, to Xi Jinping. So after uh, Xi Jinping's visit to Pyongyang, we see North Korea taking a, <clears throat> taking a clearer stance on what used to be thorny issues that they had refrained from commenting on. So these would be the Hong Kong issue. This would be the Taiwan issue. Uh, North Korea started endorsing uh, China on Hong Kong um, in August 2019, and that was only two months after Xi's visit to Pyongyang. Uh, implicitly, the party implicitly endorsing uh, China on Taiwan uh, in June 2020. Again, that was not too long after Xi's visit to Pyongyang. Uh, these moves culminated in the North Korean Foreign Ministry website's shift to a pro-China stance in August 2021 that I alluded to earlier, uh, which signaled or seemed to signal a reorienta reorientation of Pyongyang's policy toward China. And Russia, uh, which we can't forget about <laughs> given the circumstances, North Korea's pivot to Russia in August 2021, as I mentioned before, happened at the same time um, that um, North Korea began to endorse China, and this is the foreign ministry website. So the fact that these two countries were, um, North Korea started backing, uh, the foreign ministry started backing these two countries at the same time, suggested to me that the change in Russia policy occurred as part of Pyongyang's broader foreign policy change, um, and that is realignment with China um, and Russia. North Korea's uh, support for Russia became more frequent and it became quite pronounced after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, as evidenced by North Korea's implicit support of Russia's invasion um, a couple of weeks or even a week after um, the invasion. And also a few months later, um, diplomatically giving diplomatic recognition to the two breakaway uh, Ukrainian provinces. And I think it's notable to hear that North Korea's pivot to China has been very steady, whereas its pivot to Russia has been like a sprint. Um, <laughs> and we started to notice uh, this sprint becoming more um, pronounced after Che Sun-hee became the foreign minister in, in June 2022. Um, I'm not sure if that's a coincidence. It's hard to believe that it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think it's worth uh, noting um, in terms of timing. 
And so speaking of uh, Choi Sun-hee becoming a foreign minister in June 2022, uh, Kim Jong-un's letter to Putin uh, in June 2022, for the first time mentioned in connection with Russia, uh, strategic and tactical cooperation. And that was a formulation that North Korea had reserved for China. So basically elevating Russia's uh, DPRK Russia relations to um, the level of DPRK Russia, uh, DPRK China relations. Implications for economic policy. Um, I want to start out with what North Korea might view as the China opportunity. So there were signs as early as spring 2019, um, shortly after the Hanoi summit, that North Korea was moving toward greater centralization of the economy. Um, and that trend, trend became clearer as months went by. I think we started to see signs of that at the end of the at end of 2019 with the party um, plenary meeting. Um, I think the signs became uh, clearer uh, during the eighth party Congress. Um, with respect to the economic policy and that trend um, toward greater centralization. It is important to note that North Korea has not yet rolled back on reform. And um, by reform, I mean not Western-style capitalism, but North Korea's version of, of reform. Um, so adopting some elements of uh, of capitalist practices, but not full-scale um, adoption of capitalism. So again, North Korea has not altogether rolled back on economic reform, but North Korean media since uh, early 2022 um, have de-emphasized Kim's hallmark economic initiatives um, on the agricultural side and on the industrial side. And I want to emphasize since early 2022, because it should be noted that in early 2022, um, we saw a key milestone in Kim Jong-un's um, or, or North Korea's U.S. Um, policy. That was when, in January 2022, um, that was when North Korea hinted at lifting the moratorium on longer range missile and nuclear testing. And two months later, they started to um, launch ICBMs again. So North Korea's downplaying of economic reform measures since early 2022, when North Korea's foreign policy marked a turning point, uh, further underscored for me the correlation between North Korea's um, foreign policy and uh, economic policy. And it also suggested uh, that North Korea's weakened appetite to reform the economy was due at least in part to the extra space created by deteriorating U.S.-China relations and also North Korea's improving ties with, uh, with China. So the immediate and obvious gains from the space offered by Beijing are, again, obvious. Um, China's vetoes of additional UN Security Council sanctions after North Korea resumed ICBM testing. Um, China also repeatedly failing to enforce and in some respects, even hampering the monitoring of North Korean um, international sanctions um, since 2018. I think those are the obvious um, gains. I think the more important and interesting questions that we should keep in mind, however, are Pyongyang's intentions uh, toward economic development and its ultimate goal, its ultimate goal whether its ultimate goal is to pick up on 
um, and give breathe life into its slowed down economic um, reform at some point and how it intends to create a favorable external environment for doing that. So though with less frequency and lower levels, uh, North Korea continues to reform to uh, refer to reform. Um, and this is despite the apparent reversal um, in U.S. policy. And for a long time, North Korea, and this is one of the reasons that I think North Korea wanted to improve ties with the U.S., um, it was because of um, its intention to improve the economy. Um, and so the thinking on Pyongyang's part was that it needs to improve relations with the U.S. for that favorable external environment. Um, for that, for North Korea to be able to proceed with its economic reform. Now, if it has reversed that policy of improving relations, normalizing relations, improving relations, at least for the time being with the U.S., then how do they intend to improve that environment? And I think North Korea sees an opportunity in China. Um, North Korea has had a number of ventures uh, with China. Um, I think the one that comes to mind, for example, is the one one of the key ones that comes to mind is the Shiniju Special Administrative Region um, project. Um, it, that and some other projects have failed. But despite the fail failures, uh, North Korea seems to be going back to China for investment. Um, between 2013 and 2019 or so, North Korea created more than a dozen special economic zones around the country. And I have to think that North Korea had China in mind mostly. Who knows, maybe towards the end of 2017, when it was preparing to improve relations with the U.S., you know, in 2018, 2019, perhaps it had sanctions lifting in mind um, and maybe investment from other countries. But I do have to think that China was the primary target um, for, of, for its um, economic development zone, the special economic zones. And uh, there were reports, in fact, earlier in the year, I think in spring around April, that, um, that North Korea actually sought out Chinese investment in the in, in, inter-Korean um, economic um, project, the, industri the Kaesong Industrial Complex. Um, and this was citing... Um, the unification ministry in South Korea. Mm. Mm. Um, so I talked about what Pyongyang might view as the China opportunity. Um, I think for Pyongyang, for North Korea, uh, China is a double-edged sword, right? It comes, it has opportunity, it provides opportunities, but at the same time, uh, it's, you know, there's that wariness, there's that fear that they're overly dependent on Beijing. I mean, that has always been there historically, and historically, they've always tried to minimize China's influence um, on, on North Korea. And I think we continue to see that. So what I want to talk about now briefly is Pyongyang's internal struggle uh, to reduce dependence on China. Although Kim Jong-un's emphasis on self-reliance um, in his policy statement in April 2019, and this was in the wake of the Hanoi summit, um, that was largely understood to be a reaction to the failed summit in Hanoi. Um, but I also think that the self-reliance theme was used by the, Pyongyang, the North Korean leadership to uh, reduce dependence on, on China. 
And um, so during its three plus year of national lockdown to prevent a COVID outbreak, it broke out in the end, but um, during the lockdown, North Korea waged a massive national campaign um, on recycling and uh, reduction of quote unquote dependence on imports. And these are the exact words, dependence on imports. These were not new themes, recycling, uh, dependence on imports, reducing dependence, um, but they had never waged this level um, of campaign before. And it was during the COVID, um, during the lockdown. And I have to think that this, um, you know, campaign about reducing import um, dependence on imports was targeted at Pyongyang's top trading partner, China, um, given that China accounts for 90% of North Korea's trade. So I think for me, it would be reasonable to conclude that the Kim regime used the self-isolation period to maximize, perhaps even test domestic resilience and minimize dependence on China. And I suppose you could say, well, you know, it was, didn't they mat, um, wage that campaign because, you know, economic conditions were deteriorating um, with the lockdown? Um, I think that's one way of looking at it, but I think we should also think about why the regime kept its doors closed for so long. I mean, did they really have to keep the doors closed for three and a half years? Was it just because of the quarantine? Um, and depend because of, because of the various signs in the media, I think that I, th I think domestic resilience, strengthening domestic resilience really was one of the reasons. And, and the other reason being that they wanted to regain and reassert central, central control over um, all aspects of society, including the economy. Um, North Korea's self-reliance campaign climaxed uh, at the year-end party plenum in 2022 when North Korea condemned the dependence um, on the technology of others. And this stigma of depending on the technology of others essentially reversed Kim's previous position that introducing foreign technology was acceptable. Um, and this party plenum was followed by a spate of North Korea media articles warning against assistance from the outside. Uh, again, when we think about North Korea bashing um, assistance from the outside, we tend to think about the US and, and the Western powers, but I also think that um, it, it, it targets China. So I think this is a nice segue into North Korea's de-risking um, from China. Um, Kim and his associates likely, in my point of view, do not view Beijing as a completely trustable partner in its fight against the U.S., um, which, of course, is important because it has been a recurring theme in North Korea's messaging toward um, Beijing, um, including Kim, Kim Jong-un's letters to Xi, um, the socialist bond, the common cause, um, the fight against um, Western powers um, or uh, Western-led um, global order. Um, you know, um, jointly responding to regional, um, the regional situation, the global situation. Um, I think from North Korea's point of view, uh, China is trying to manage rather than escalate tensions um, with the US. So Beijing trying to manage its relations with Washington. Um, 
the fact that Beijing wants to be a to be wants to be viewed as a responsible global um, power. Um, neither one of these may be to Kim Jong Un's liking, because what Kim Jong Un is looking for is a reliable partner in this anti-U.S. struggle on the global stage. And so, for that reason, I think he finds Putin to be the more attractive partner at the moment. Um, and I think we see this in Kim Jong Un's letters, um, in Kim Jong Un's letter actually to Xi Jinping, um, and North Korean media's characterizations of uh, Kim's meetings with Shoigu and uh, and Putin. Um, ever since the Army Day celebrations, uh, Armistice Day celebrations at the end of July, uh, we see a cooling down of North Korea's messaging toward Beijing. Um, they ceased using expressions. Um, like um, joint response or common cause. Uh, we no longer see strategic and tactical cooperation in North Korea's uh, media messaging toward um, China. Instead, those formulations have moved um, to North Korea's messaging toward Russia. Um, so jointly responding to the international situation, for example, strategic and tactical cooperation, um, we see that in Russia instead. So without seeing the country names in the reports, it's kind of hard to um, see. Uh, it, you would be surprised to know that those were actually geared at Russia and not China. <laughs> um, I think in terms of uh, why, you know, why the sudden cooling down, was it just because China sent a lower-level delegation to the Armistice Day celebrations um, compared to Russia, uh, which sent uh, the defense minister, who's obviously much more, much higher ranking than um, the Chinese, um, the head of the Chinese delegation, um, or were the signs already there? I think for me it was interesting that um, North Korea even invited such a high-level Russian to an event that was that traditionally has been a very much china oriented event um the armistice day uh the russians didn't really have a have a role in that you know they north korea has always used that um event to pay tribute to the fallen soldiers of china's uh, people's volunteer army um russia was never really in the picture um with regard to this event so why the appearance of of, of such a high level Russian official. So perhaps we started to see a signal from Pyongyang that maybe it had made a bigger uh, policy shift, one that involves um, pivoting uh, more closely to, to Russia. Um, yeah, North Korea likes to group China and Russia in the same bowl as I mentioned earlier, but that's really for convenience. But, you know, as we can see, um, I think North Korea is already kind of, you know, it has that history of pitting China against Russia during the Cold War. And I wonder if we are starting to see the same thing now, although the circumstances obviously are very different from the one um, that the world found itself in during the Cold War. Um... Now, I would just like to wrap up um, by way of concluding my um, the summary of my um, paper. So uh, U.S.-China strategic competition has offered unique opportunities uh, to North Korea. The immediate benefits, again, are um, sanctions, uh, North Korea, uh, China blocking additional U.N. sanctions, and 
helping North Korea evade, evade um, international sanctions. More significant, however, is that China or the deteriorating uh, relations between the U.S. and China um, seem to have offered that extra um, wriggling, wriggles, um, wriggle room or space um, to, to North Korea to look for alternative foreign policy and economic paths. For example, the on the foreign policy front, um, shifting away from normalization of relations with the U.S., through denuclearization and realigning uh, with uh, Russia and China, both of which are, again, major shifts from what we saw um, in, in the 1990s. And on the economic front, uh, North Korea uh, slowing down on economic reform, you know, again, if it sees China as, um, as providing an opportunity that the, the U.S. Uh, won't, is not going to provide, um, is that, was that a factor in Pyongyang's thinking about economic reform. And again, despite the opportunity, the, the, um, the opportunities that China, um, offers North Korea, um, of course, uh, North Korea is, uh, wary of the overdependence, um, it's, uh, economic overdependence on China. And we have seen signs of that during, um, during the lockdown. Um, and we see, um, I mean, just the fact that Kim Jong-un went to Russia, that he chose Russia as the first um, destination of, foreign, of his foreign travel after he reopened borders, um, I think is very significant that we had a Russian, the Russian defense minister showing up at the Armistice Day celebrations, mm. um, I think was another strong signal that North Korea, for some reason, um, uh, is pivoting uh, more closely um, to Russia. Um, so what does that mean then? Is Russia part of a tactical, like short-term tactical um, solution? Or does Pyongyang see Russia as a longer-term strategic, um, a key player in its longer-term strategic thinking? Um, I think it remains to be seen. I think it's, um, I was looking at the Chinese and Russian reactions to what is unfolding right now in the Middle East. And I put myself in Kim Jong-un's shoes. Um, and I think that he would like Russians' uh, reaction better. So Russia basically blaming the U.S. for its failed Middle East policy, um, basically gloating over um you know, the failure, what, what it calls a failure of um, U.S. policy in the Middle East. Um, and then Putin, of course, um, last week at the Valdai Club gave a speech where he said he wants to build a new global order. And I think both of those things are music to Kim Jong-un's ears. And I think in some ways, his comments um, might reinforce Pyongyang's thinking that for the moment, at least, that Russia may be the more reliable partner in in its anti-U.S., um, on the anti-U.S. front. Yeah. Oh. Thank you. And um, yeah, I'll, cl I'll, I'll finish here and um, I'd be happy to discuss more. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Rachel. Um, I have questions I prepared and then actually other ones that have been uh, rising as you as you uh, presented. Um, and I want to make sure I, I get to the audience as well. Um, but uh, I'm going to do moderator's privilege first. Um, <laughs> You mentioned, of course, that there's this, what appears to be a fundamental shift away from the several decades long um, effort to, to normalize under 
the guise or some degree of denuclearization with mm-hmm. the U.S. Right, and and for the U.S. to be a sort of a buffer of sorts um, to Russia and China, mm-hmm. with whom there's no love or trust lost. Right, um, and um, and this would provide the favorable external environment for economic reform. Um, but that has shifted post Hanoi, especially. Um, in theory, what do you think the U.S. government, whether it would or wouldn't do it, could do to shift North Korea's calculus? Well, theoretically, and I don't know how this would be done, <laughs> I think um, is to somehow um, make Pyongyang see that aligning with China and Russia is not a good idea and it's better to align with the U.S. Mm-hmm. In terms of how we can do that, I'm not so sure. Um, in my opinion, with you know, with what Kim Jong Un has been saying about denuclearization, realistically speaking, um, I don't think the next time North Korea shows up at the negotiating table, I don't think denuclearization is going to be on the table. Unfortunately, um, as much as we would like for it to be, I'm not sure that that is going to be on the table. Realistically. Um, uh, you know, with Kim Jong Un's comments, I think he he's shooting for maybe arms control, uh, maybe some other, maybe not arms control, but you know, some other maybe um, related measures, but not really denuclearization. That's the sense that I I think we're getting from from reading the media. Um, sanctions, lifting sanctions, I don't think that's going to be good enough anymore. The other question that we have to think about at this juncture, since we're talking about if once we start thinking about what we might do to bring North Korea back to the negotiating table and what is going to be a realistic option um, going forward with North Korea, does North Korea want regime security? I mean, because when we talk about normalizing North Korea, wanting to normalize relations with the U.S., North Korea doing this or that to get U.S. attention. You know, we talk about that a lot when North Korea fires a missile. Um, We tend to link that to Pyongyang's wish to get North Korea, uh, Washington's attention. So all of that is kind of, you know, the whole discussion about North Korea's intentions do tend to revolve around their desire to get regime security. From the U.S., but is that is that the right premise? You know, as we start thinking about the different policy paths and options, I'm not so sure anymore. Is that the right premise for us to have about what's driving what, what North, North yes, Korea? Is yes. If so, as ridiculous as this may sound, you know, from North Korea's point of view, it, it is an irreversible nuclear power. That's how it calls calls itself. So if it's an irreversible nuclear power, then does it really need regime security? It's, it's achieved it, essentially. It, I think North Korea knows that it's weak on the conventional side. Sure. And I think, um, you know, they'll try to, you know, make up for it. However, you know, they can. Um, but again, you know, this may not sound very logical, but, you know, looking at it from their point of view, you know, I'm trying to think about how they're looking at things. Is that really what they want? And maybe that's part of the reason why they feel like they don't really need to normalize relations with the U.S. and certainly not through denuclearization. Mm. I'm sure they would love to improve relations with the U.S., but not at the expense of giving, giving up their nuclear weapons. And so then why? 
And, and then that, this is when we have to think about what is driving them and why they've decided to shift away. Um, I'll, I'll change tack and actually open up to the audience mm -hmm. and ask if anybody has any questions in the audience, um, both here, but also online. Um, yes, my, my colleague, Tom Ramage. Thomas K. is newly, uh, not so newly anymore, uh, hired economic analyst. Yes. Uh, hi, Tom Ramage. Uh, thank you for speaking today. Um, I enjoyed reading in your paper, uh, essentially, quotes from the Journal of Kim Jong-un uh, University Economic uh, Journal. The Kim Il-sung University, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Kim Il-sung, yes. Um, basically saying that they cannot ignore reliance on foreign technology or imports of foreign technology mm -hmm. to North Korea. Mm -hmm. um, and then in Article 19 of North Korea's constitution, it calls for an independent national economy. So in any way, is this at odds um, with, with North Korea's Juche ideology to have to have foreign technology? And is China uh, helping them in any way to have foreign technology, such as this drone that was uh, touted at the um, armistice celebration. Um, I I am not an expert on drones or North Korean military technology, so I'm probably not best positioned to answer that. Um, but going back to your question about the possible discrepancy between their Juche ideology and also the recognition on North Korea's part that it can't not. Um, rely on foreign technology. Mm. You know, I think they, Chuche is always there in the background, right? But they're also very good about justifying their actions um, if they need to. Um, so in the past, you know, not in the past, well, yeah, in the past, when Kim Jong-un first came to power in um, 2020, 2012, um, one of the first things that he said was, uh, we should adopt foreign elements um, if they serve our needs. That's what he said. So is that going against Chuche? I mean, I think that they would say no. Um, so they always have that way of justifying. As long as it serves our needs and as long as we're doing it right, then it's fine. Um, but I think it's notable that at the party plenary meeting recently, they shifted away from that. Scott. Uh, Scott Snyder, Council on Foreign Relations. Um, you provided a lot of background to um, uh, the developments of 22 and 23 and, and, and uh, reaching out to Russia, but I, I want to ask you to go back a little bit further uh, and analyze the relationship between um, the failure of the Hanoi summit and its reverberations uh, for North Korean foreign policy and the shift in global order. Uh, and specifically, uh, the um, the frontal breakthrough uh, policy, and whether or not that was informed by perceptions of a shift in global order. Um, by December of 2020, we could see evidence that Russia and China were not so cooperative at the UNSC. Uh, or is it really more that uh, the shift in global order provided a, an opportunity or an accelerant to a pre-existing policy direction that North Korea had already defined? 
it's kind of tricky to see what um, caused, like whether A caused B or, you know, whether B caused A. Um, I think for sure um, North Korea's view of the U.S. was, I think, greatly affected by the Hanoi summit. Um, and, you know, the, the policy, I think, did start to shift a little bit, you know, and I think the long-term confrontation, the recurring um, theme related to long-term confrontation that we started to see in the wake of the Hanoi summit um, is a testament to that, um, you know, because it reflects North Korea's thinking that no matter what it does, um, this problem between the DPRK and the U.S. will not really be solved easily or anytime soon. Um, so, you know, as, as, as North Korea's thinking um, about the U.S. Um, started to change, not fully reversing, um, not, not full reversal, but as it started to change, I think it started to notice these trends on the global stage, you know, deteriorating relations between the U.S. and um, China, um, and then, um, you know, Russia and China moving closer, um, which uh, led to the, um, resulted in the No Limits in Friendship um, Treaty. Of course, whether it's really No Limits, you know, it's hard to say, but and then the war in Ukraine um, and China's position to that uh, on that, um, I think, yeah, again, I, I think it's hard to say what impacted what. In some ways, one might even say, well, maybe it's because North Korea's U.S. policy shifted so much, or you know, did the full reversal that, you know, in order to fill that gap, North Korea then felt the need to realign itself with China and Russia because it needs to fill that void with something. Um, it's, but given, given the timeline though, um, again, I think the shift in, in, you know, in, in the U S in Pyongyang's U S policy did start to take place after Hanoi, after the Hanoi summit. But I, the fact that we didn't really see the full scale reversal of policy until I would say January, 2022, when they um, basically went back on their moratorium. Um, we did see in the middle, um, so after Hanoi and then um, January, 2022, in that, you know, between those two um, timestamps, um, you know, North Korea really pivoting um, toward Russia and China. So one could even say that all of those things happened sort of kind of fed into each other in a way. Um, I, I just want to pick up on that, the, the phrase that something had to fill that void. And so we, we see which, you know, what I was going to say what you call, but what North Korea itself calls, you know, a shift for a long-term mm -hmm. confrontation, right, mm -hmm. when, when it comes to the U.S. Um, and looking, you know, realigning, um, not just because of U.S. policy, but because of, the geopolitical trends toward China and, and now sprinting more towards <laughs> Russia. Um, but one of the questions we discussed is, and I want to build on this, how might North Korea respond to a weakened China in the course of U.S.-China competition? We see a lot of, uh, obviously, economic headwinds in China right now. And just yesterday, the, the story again about Evergrande and, and uh, the other uh, property company whose name escapes me. Um, but also China's own efforts to put a floor under its relations with the U.S., to be a responsible power and stakeholder in its own way um, that could place limits on how far it goes in supporting North Korea. 
but also looking at Russia's situation. We don't know how the war in Ukraine is going to play out. Mm. We don't know what Putin's uh, standing will look like in six months or a year. Mm. It could be a situation where, while North Korea uh, has geared up for long-term competition with the U.S., the two powers that it's looked to to help fill that void or gap uh, aren't readily doing so for, for whatever reasons. Um, I hate to ask you to predict North Korea's behavior, um, but but if it's in this situation where it's not willing to shift back to, you know, with with the U.S., but it's two patrons that it would have filled that void aren't aren't doing so in a way that meets its needs, how do you think this will alter its calculus and and potentially its behavior? I've asked you to predict their thinking and behavior. So that's an interesting question, because back in the 1990s, when North Korea made the decision to move away from Russia and China, right, they the had... The shock of the 1992, mm, you know, just, you know, normalization... Yeah, with the, with between the Russia Korea and, 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 and South yeah. Korea, China and South Korea, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, it had the U.S., right, to fall back on. But if we are... If North Korea really has indeed fundamentally moved away from the U.S., and we have yet to that has yet to be confirmed, right? Um, I think it's moved away from sorry, it, what but has, what has the, the North Korea, the normalization, the, the policy is, of normalizing relations with yeah. the U.S. Um, through denuclearization. Um, I, I mean, I think it has been reversed, um, but, uh, you know, it could, I guess, change that policy at some point. But But supposing that that's a fundamental shift and they have no you know, a desire to, to go back on that, you know, what, what then, what other option does it have? And perhaps this, this is your question. Mm. Um, I think after it achieves most, if not all, I'm not sure if it's going to be possible to achieve all, but uh, once that five-year defense development plan comes to an end, um, and it should come to an end in 2026, right? Because it was proclaimed in um, 2021 of January. Uh, it will probably be more open to seeking diplomatic contact with the U.S., but just on very different terms, not through denuclearization. So I don't think that they're ever going to go back on that. That the U.S. may not be willing to grant it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't want to tease out the different logic of these <laughs> scenarios there, but um, Andrew, do we have any questions online? Uh, we do. Um, so one of our audience from our, our one from the virtual audience asks, given recent developments, how does North Korea view economic incentives for engagement with South Korea and the United States? And if projects like Kaesong are still useful? I think any economic incentives that might come from the U.S. and South Korea, North Korea is not interested in. I mean, the fact that they remain to uh, manage to flip, uh, manage to stay afloat during the three and a half years of uh, national lockdown, um, they have their means clearly, <laughs> and that's a different topic, right? Um, different um, discussion for another day, um, but. I, you know, they've they've uh, constantly said no to South Korea's offers um, for assist of assistance, um, for international assistance. They've said no to all of those. Um, I don't think they're interested, at, the, at least not not at the moment. And and certainly inter-Korean um, economic 
um, cooperation um, projects now. And, and certainly not while um, President Yoon is in office. Do we have any other questions in the audience? Time for maybe one more. Scott's going to double dip. <laughs> no, no. Please. Two questions. But uh, because you focus so much on North Korea's expectations for strategic cooperation in Kim and Putin, it raises a very interesting question of whether or not China's capacity, to the extent that it had capacity, to induce restraint on the part of North Korea has been diminished. Uh, and so I'm curious to know how you see the China-North Korea relationship, and, and in particular, the question of whether or not China has had any possible influence on inducing restraint as related to a seventh nuclear test. Um, uh, you know, could that be damaged by uh, the apparent focus on of Kim Jong-un on Putin and Russia? I think where Kim Jong-un, how Kim Jong-un's thinking on Russia would have an impact on, you know, on, on DPRK China relations. Um, I don't think North Korea is going to risk damaging relations with Beijing. Um, I think it still wants to keep China somewhere around. <laughs> I don't think it's going to want to burn bridges. Um, after all, China's the one that always is going to have their back economically and financially. It's never been Russia. Um, and, and they do need China's money um, and help, I think. Um, uh, and it's always better, I think, to have two supporters on the UNSC than, than one, right? Um, that's extra cover. I, I've always wondered how much... And this is not even relating to, you know, North Korea's pivot um, toward Russia um, and what we're seeing with um, Kim and Putin um, and the summit recently. I think the more fundamental question for me is how much influence Beijing really has over Pyongyang at the end of the day. And, and you know, this is a question that comes up um, from time to time. Um, and a lot of people ask, you know, did, did China have a role in maybe restraining or delaying North Korea's seventh nuclear test. Does China even care about a North Korean nuclear test at this point? It's a seventh. And I think you'll get different answers depending on who you ask. Um, does China, I think China does have some level of influence on North Korea, but I think for the more fundamental issues for issues that North Korea really cares about and intends to carry out anyway, I tend to think that Beijing's influence is not as great as we may think it is. Hmm. There's a book titled uh, Massive Entanglement, Marginal Influence about the U.S.-South Korea relationship that comes to mind for, for this. I think they would be They'd be concerned more about not the test itself, but the response it would elicit from the trilateral mm -hmm. relationship and, and, mm -hmm. and Washington. Um, well, I say this every time. There's always so much more to discuss. Um, the hour is the sweet spot to maintain attention, but but not enough to, to sort of mine all um, the questions that uh, your wonderful paper and presentation brings to mind. Um, I do want to just reiterate that uh, Rachel's paper will be in uh, our journal Korea Policy, issue three of it, which will come out before the end of the calendar year, uh, but also highlight that uh, volume one, issue two, um, will be released any day now, 
um, both digitally and uh, in print version, uh, which does contain an article by uh, none other than Scott Snyder himself um, uh, and myself as well. Um, and that covers different perspectives on the Indo-Pacific concept and different Indo-Pacific strategies. Uh, and next week, uh, this is on our website and we hope to have it live streamed KEI uh, is it, our, our road show at uh, UT Austin. We'll be presenting a panel on, again, the concept of economic security, which is a theme of this particular issue, and looking at the, the issue of economic security from the South Korean, uh, Japan, China, and US perspectives. And there'll be two panels uh, looking at that issue. So stay tuned for that. It's on our website. And thank you again, uh, Rachel, for, for coming to thank present you. your work. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. For more Korea content, keep an eye on our podcast feed.